please turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. We will be in verses 17 through 3, 5. Malachi chapter 2. Let me get myself set up here. As soon as I hear all the pages not ruffle anymore, I think it'll be time to go. So if you got it, this is what this is how it reads. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem would be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of the Lord and as in former years. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask now to see your glories in this text, to hear your words, um, and we and I pray that the the meditations of my heart and the words from my mouth would be pleasing and acceptable before you, and I ask that you would make us into what this text is calling us to be by the power of Jesus and for His glory. And we all said, "Amen, Amen." The question posed here to us is, where is the God of justice. Hasn't this question come across your mind at some point? Where is the God of justice? We aren't so different from the original audience here and even asking that question. In the midst of our own adversities, in the midst of our own pain, we are asking, where is the God of justice? Or we're seeing out there, why does evil continue to prosper? And then we ask the question, is God indifferent to it? Because it seems like they're just winning. And then the subsequent question that's even underneath of those questions is, this isn't fair. If you watch someone good suffer and you think that's not fair, you watch someone evil prosper, that's not fair. And amid our own sin and the sin of others and the challenges of a fallen world, our perception of God's justice, friends, can be obstructed. And we can ask these questions. They're valid questions. They're real questions. But they might be missing the actual view of God and God and his justice. And so the entirety of the book of Malachi reveals that the people here are engaged in just religious rituals that are void of a relationship with the Lord. They sought the benefits of the covenant without actually upholding their end of it. They wanted the blessings without aligning themselves in the relationship and in the ways in which God had designed for them to live. Then I wanna beg the question, how is that fair? If somebody gives you something and a, a way to do something and a, and, a, and a life and a being, and you decide to do it the completely opposite way that he has designed it to be, how is that even fair? 
So Malachi arrives as a messenger of God, highlighting the sin that has corrupted not only the priest, as you see here in this text, as we saw earlier, but also the temple that is devoid of the presence of God. But then by extension, those two things being neglected and being an absence of God's presence, it extends to the people. The corruption is on the people as well. The people are plagued then with questions of feeling forsaken by God because God is not there, because evil is prospering and good is seemingly not. And what happens here is in essence that their own sin and the sin of others and the fallenness of this world has obstructed their perception of God. And what you can see, if if you think back in the book of Malachi, you can sense it in the questions that they ask to God. If you think verses, verse one, or chapter one of verse two, have you loved us? Or verse six of chapter one, how have we despised your name? Or have we polluted you? Why does God not favor us? They're questioning God because things have been obstructed. And now we come to the fourth question of the disputations of God being on trial. And they say to him, where is the God of justice? The people have an obstructed view of God's just dealings with them and with the world that they inhabit. And this is why this passage exists for us so that we can see exactly how God's justice will work. That's why it exists for us. So which then leads me to the next logical question then, and what we should be asking is, okay, how does God's justice work then? If it seems like evil is prospering and good is is suffering, it seems like God delights in it, then how does God's justice actually work? And what I wanna say is you'll see it in, in two things, particularly in this text. It's not exhaustive, but it's in the text. And it's through a person and it's for a purpose. So God's justice works through a person and for a purpose. So first let's look at then through a person. So as we delve into the question of where is the God of justice, it becomes evident that the people have questioned it primarily because sin has so corrupted them. And it's so corrupted the temple that they no longer embody what God had actually designed for Abraham, their forefather, to inhabit. And that is that God didn't just bless Abraham to be a blessing to the nations, but if you read further on in Genesis 18, 19, he says that God also set him apart to be righteous and just. So he wasn't just to be a blessing, but he was also to deal in righteousness and justice among the people. So throughout history, God has revealed his justice through his chosen people. So when in a right relationship with God, his people will do righteousness and justice. But however, when that relationship is broken, when that relationship is severed because of sin, righteousness and justice are not flowing properly. And you can look through the whole Old Testament and see how that plays out. When God's people are in sin, they're not embodying that which is inherently true of God, and that is righteousness and justice. So turning our attention to Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we encounter God's response to where is 
the God of justice. And he starts by saying he's going to send a messenger. And what we encounter here is two messengers. There's one that comes before and then a second one. So let's examine the first messenger. So the text opens up with the quote, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare a way before me. So when probing God about justice, the last thing that I personally want to hear, maybe you want to hear is God saying to you, essentially what everyone gets when they call the pharmacist is they get that automated thing of like, here, I can help you until you da, 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 da. And you're thinking, no, I want to talk to the source. I want the source to actually do something for me. Well, God is saying, I'm going to send a messenger to prepare the way. That could be a bit disheartening to some hearers, to even us to think, oh, God's just going to send a messenger. I can't exactly deal with him straightforward. But in Malachi chapter four, the prophet directly addresses the first messenger promising this. And it says, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And then if you think back to Mark chapter one, this confirms the messenger of Malachi from Jesus himself, this primary, this first messenger, the one who's going to prepare the way as John the Baptist. So then Luke 1.17 describes how John will come in the spirit of Elijah and in the power of Elijah to prepare the way for who? For Jesus. So what's the point? Why is it, why is it important that someone would come before? Well, because if you think about what John just preached on last week is that the people were devoid of a king. And whenever a king would make his re-entry into a place, into a land, he would send before him someone who would prepare the way, saying, I am returning, I am coming. And that's what John the Baptist is for the returning of the king, Jesus. He's preparing the way. And so what God is saying is, behold, I will send my messenger. And what John does is he doesn't take care of the actual sin problem that underlines the justice that they're, that they're begging God to have, but he begins to clear the path for the person who will. Essentially, he starts to yell out to them, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is coming. Repent for the forgiveness of what? Of sin is what John says, because the king is coming and the king is the one who is going to take care of the sin. And the sin is the thing that underlines the injustice to which they are calling for. So John the Baptist cannot ultimately reverse the curse or this messenger whom is coming before God into the temple cannot ultimately reverse the curse, but he cries out to anyone who will hear and who anyone who will heed his words to actually hear then what God is going to give to them, what God is going to say to them. And so he cuts through the human pride, creating a humble path for the glory of God to manifest itself in Jesus. This is John the Baptist I'm speaking of, who Jesus is the true priest, the true prophet, and the true king, which then takes us then to the second messenger that you see. So if John the Baptist or this first messenger is preparing the way, we can continue the interpretation of the lens of Jesus and John the Baptist, and we can consider then the logical conclusion of the second messenger as someone I've already mentioned, which that is the second messenger is Christ. We're just going to cut straight to it. It is Jesus. So the passage states, and the Lord whom you seek, who are they asking the question to? 
They were asking the question to God, where is the God of justice? The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the use of the word Lord here, just to get very technical, it differs from other occurrences in the book. So just by looking at our, the book that we have in front of us, the English versions that we have in front of us, you'll see two different variations of Lord. What? Lord with all capital letters and then Lord with the capital L, lowercase O-R-D. So in this case, the latter format is employed. Well, how does that mean that this is actually Jesus? Well, in, the, in Hebrew, for the original hearers, they would have heard Lord as Adun. And Adun is essentially master. And so what it's saying to them is, and signaling to them is the, the Davidic line is what's being provoked here. So where is the God of justice? They are looking now as him coming as the king, as the Davidic line is being provoked through Lord. And if that's not enough for us to consider, then we can also look and put our feet down on the fact that it says his temple. John the Baptist didn't own the temple. The temple was there for God. God is coming to his temple. And so it is crucial then for us to know what this communicates to them is that they're now going to expect the king to come. And at the same time that they're expecting the king to come, it also says this will be the messenger of the covenant. And the covenant represented before the people of God, the reconciler between them and God. God had made a covenant with Abraham, with Moses, with etc. And that is the mediator between God and man. This is the messenger of the covenant. And this is ultimately found in the true and better messenger, which is Jesus, the true and better reconciler for God and for man. So now that we have those two people out of the way, then what does it mean for God and justice? How does God's justice work? And I want to say that God's justice is found in Jesus. That person is Christ. So why does that matter? So consider what Jesus then represents. On one level, Jesus represents the entirety of humanity. Think about Romans 5. In Romans 5, the apostle Paul says, we were dead in Adam's sin, but we are alive in Christ's sin. That's a generalization saying that because of Adam's humanity, in his humanity, we are all dead, but we are all made alive in Christ. Or on another level, Jesus is the imperfect embodiment of Israel. Now, if you've never really considered that or thought about it, Matthew emphasizes that Jesus fulfills a prophecy in Hosea 11. So just make a mark, Hosea 11, check it out. But Hosea 11 essentially says that out of Egypt, I brought my son. And what happens in Matthew chapter two is that Jesus and his family are sent down to Egypt and then brought back out of Egypt, portraying him as the true and better Israel, who succeeds where the covenant had failed. So like ancient Israel, Jesus came out of Egypt. He passes through waters. He faces temptation in the wilderness, and he remains faithful to God. But however, unlike the old covenant Israel, Jesus successfully passes the test, right? He doesn't sin. He remains faithful, and he is, that makes him worthy to be called the son of God, which Israel in the Old Testament was called the son of God. And so God, and so Jesus in both his deity and his humanity are 
then on the most fundamental level, he is God. He is the incarnate God. So then how do we relate to God's justice then through Jesus? If God's justice is in Jesus because Jesus is coming as God, then how do we then relate to God's justice through Jesus? So it is in Jesus we have good, no, good news for those of us who long for justice, for those of us who have suffered at the hands of injustices. It says, in Jesus, we see God, the God of justice entering human history in the perfect embodiment of righteousness and justice. He never at any point took advantage of the said person who in society would be deemed as less than or cast off. What did Jesus do? As the king preparing the way, he came and he took his time to go to those who society deemed to be outcast and oppressed and and far off. He didn't take advantage of them, but he dignified them. He in himself embodied righteousness and justice. And Luke tells us in chapter four, this very thing about how Jesus described himself when he opened up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It says this in Luke chapter four, The spirit of the Lord is upon me, upon Jesus, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So to proclaim good news to the captives, to set those who are oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor favor. That's what Jesus did, the perfect embodiment of righteousness and justice. So Jesus does this by showing us in himself that God's mercy and God's justice come together in him. The person God's sin, God sends to carry out his justice is Jesus. We cannot miss that on the most fundamental level. Jesus embodies the justice of God. We cannot miss that. So justice and mercy then meet at Jesus. And so in Isaiah 3, 18, and if we think about what is happening with Israel as they're asking the question, where is the God of justice? They've grown impatient. They're not waiting. They're begging and they're just pining for God to show up because they believe that God is unjust because he hasn't shown up when they've wanted him to show up or how they've wanted him to show up. But Isaiah 30, 18 says this, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you for the Lord is a God of justice. But Israel then, Israel during the time of Jesus and even us now were slash are despising his words at times and trusting perversion and oppression. So how could God actually be gracious to us? Why would God actually be gracious to them or to us? How could God bless those people who do not act righteously or do act unjustly? How could he possibly do that? How could he possibly bless those who cursed him and despised him? And this is the scandal of the reality of the person of Jesus is that God himself became a curse for the ones whom he desi- who deserved the curse. 
So reveling again, the familiar and the shocking story of how justice and mercy meet in the person of Jesus. Looking at Romans chapter three, it says this, and it's a very familiar passage for all of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the, redemp- through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. All those former things and those former ways that people were unrighteous and unjust and living in sin and despising God, God passed over it by his mercy. He passed over it in Jesus. And it was to show that his righteousness at the, pre- at the present time, so that he might be both the just one and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the marriage of the justice and mercy of Jesus is eloquently portrayed in the wooden beams that hung outside of Jerusalem. The justice and mercy of Jesus is eloquently portrayed in the wooden beams that hung outside of Jerusalem. So through the cross, God is both just and justifier, both just and merciful. And on that dark and bloody hill, the terrifying justice of God became the servant to his mercy. Can you imagine that? The justice, the the thing that God should have done was pour out wrath on an entire world that went the opposite direction of what he intended it to be. But at the cross, God's justice bent its knee to his mercy, both of them working simultaneously and perfectly together at the very same time. That is incredible. And it bent to his mercy for all who would believe to all who would believe. So in Christ, justice is no longer a threat, but a refuge. Because that's the real thing that actually matters. It's not just that there's a bunch of injustice out there, but there is injustice that dwells inside of us because of sin. Remember, John the Baptist was a messenger who could not actually take care of the thing that underlines all the injustice that we see in the world. And that's the corrupt nature of man because of sin. But Jesus on the cross both became just and justifier. And you see both the mercy and the justice of God because he took care of the one injustice that rules over all injustices. And that's the fact that the sin that we have committed before a holy God is satisfied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's justice came in a person. So every injustice that you see out there has to be satisfied in Jesus because Jesus is the only one that can take care of the root. So that is what matters. So all the sovereign power that would have ruined us, would have ruined this world, now is a promise to protect those of us who have found their refuge in the mercy and justice of Jesus. This is fundamental for us to understand and to get deep down in our hearts if we are actually going to be people of righteousness and justice. Without that, we are just 
emptily going about trying to enact righteous injustice, but for our own pleasure, for our own sake, for our own good, for whatever power structure might be out there. But here you see that Jesus is the heart of righteousness and justice. So the questions I have for us is how could we feel the full weight of his mercy towards us if we tend to ignore and marginalize the fury of his justice? God hates the injustice of the world far more than we do. We just don't believe it enough because we don't look hard enough at the fact that God's justice was satisfied in Christ. Look at it, revel in it, think about it. Consider the mercy of God there at the cross for you. And also at the very same time, the just wrath of God satisfied on your behalf. Consider it. Or how much more can we trust Jesus when we behold the beauty of God's justice at work through him? How much more can we trust him when we see the beauty of justice and righteousness working through him? Or can we, some of us, can we trust Jesus? with the injustices of the past, the current injustices that we see in the present and the injustices that will happen in the future. Can we trust him with that? If he actually cares more about the injustices in this world than we do, can we trust him in it? Or can you just simply believe him? Can you? Malachi 3.2 says this, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? And this is for those of us who are wrestling right now with the reality that we have continually failed God or don't care about injustice or we've committed injustices. And I want to bring an illustration to, to come to mind. Have any of you been driving down the road? And I would assume because most of you drove down here. And do you remember that? Do you, can you think about that feeling when the berries and cherries come up in your rearview mirror? When the police pull you over? That's what I mean by berries and cherries. Sorry, that is, that is something that is only in my vernacular, I assume. When a cop comes behind you to pull you over, what feeling do you have? That gut, in your gut, you feel it, right? You're like, oh, what if you were going the speed limit? You were in the bounds of what was happening or what should have been happening. What if you weren't going the speed limit? Then that gut feeling and the response to that cop coming up to your window is totally different if you're completely out of the bounds of what was put in front of you. What I'm saying is that Jesus is the bounds. So on the coming of the day of the Lord, when his justice will actually be enacted fully and surely, you can rest easy if you're in the bounds of Jesus. So when you hear something like this is who can endure the day? Who can handle the fact that God is coming and he will put everything right? Well, if you're in Jesus, God's justice and mercy is satisfied. You don't have to worry. But if you're outside of Jesus, I wanna say to you, friend, that gut feeling that you feel with a cop, it's gonna be magnified when God comes to actually enact his justice fully in this world, in the person of Jesus. Because Jesus holds the keys both just and justifier to the justice we all long for. So God's justice is evident in Jesus. Either we embrace the awe-inspiring belief that, that sins and justice is satisfied in him, or we await the day when God will actually enact his justice. And we tremble because we're not in him. And that day, friends, 
can be glorious because all injustices in this world will be gone, but it will also be very, very fearful because it is a God who created this world, one who is holy and a consuming fire, the text says. A consuming fire. It's not something to mess with, but God's mercy and justice is offered to us in Christ. So I beg you and I implore you, can we believe in him? Can we believe that he's enough? So as we behold the justice of God enacted in the person of Jesus, this text gives us a picture of the type of community and world Jesus's justice is and will ultimately produce. And this leads us into our second point and will be so much shorter than the first, is that God's justice works out through the person of Jesus for a purpose. It's for a purpose. So where is the God of justice? That was the opening question. And that question reveals to us as readers, the heart of the people, they had lost sight of who God is. They lost sight of who God is. And when we question God's character, we can lose sight of God's purposes. And as we lose sight of God's purposes, we question the validity of God's ability to do inherently what he is bound to do. He is so holy that he has to act justly. It, there's no giving up or... Um, His holiness and his mercy and his justice, they all act at 125,000% at all times. There's no letting it down. It all acts together perfectly and fully at all times. So he has to act justly. But as this text reveals to us, God's slowness, friends, to inhabit this earth and to enact justice does not mean that he is unjust. 2,000 years ago, he enacted the most beautiful picture of what it means for justice to be embodied. And that was in Jesus. His slowness to act right now in the ways that we want him to act with injustice does not mean that God is unjust. It does not mean that. So what I want to say to us is that now, if you believe, and if you are in Jesus and you believe that Jesus is the righteous and justice, he is creating a community that now will embody that reality, that will live more fully into him who is the head. And if the head is acting righteous and justly, then a community of people, his people then therefore will act righteous and justly. And we see that come in two particular ways in this text. We see first that he will purify his people. God will purify his people. And there's a grace and a mercy in this for us, friends. It's not just all gloom and doom that God would purify us. It's that God cares that much about our holiness. God cares that much about our our righteousness and justice in this world that he would actually purify his church. He cares that much about it. So this gets us into why he talks about the priesthood. So in verses two and four, if you see there, God tells us that his messenger will purify and refine them so that they present offerings of righteousness. Now I've used righteousness and justice together because they go together. It's not just a right standing before the Lord. It is actually enacting right things in the world, which is what his justice is also doing. It is putting all those things that are out of joint back right. And it is taking care of the things that are oppressed and broken and downtrodden and dark and putting them into the light and putting them right and making them whole. That's why righteous and justice have come together in my conversation with you and in this sermon this morning. And so the point of the priesthood, as we discussed two weeks ago, was to instruct, to protect, and intercede for the people. 
but the people and the priests were not doing the priesthood because he is going to purify his church. He's going to purify the temple. And once they've been purified, it says that he will be a refiner's fire and a sulfur's soap. So what's what's happening here with this refiner's fire and this sulfur's soap? So on the impending day of God's judgment, the prophet envisions trial by both fire and water. So contrasting the two elements, and testing both of them with the priesthood. So the Lord's arrival is likened to a refining fire which purifies silver and gold, separating worthless dross. So if you've ever done anything with a forge or with uh, materials, what ends up happening is you put it in the heat at the proper temperature and it melts away all of the infirmities all of the things that were wrong about it, all of the things that would make it impure. And what, what happens when you pull it back out? It leaves something pure. It, does, it gives it its actual purpose. It takes away all that was wrong with it. And the same thing happens with fuller soap and clothing. The fuller soap was there to run the clothing through the wash until what went away? Till the dirt went away. So what's so painful about either of those things? Well, we should ask the dross and we should ask the dirt. Those things get melted away and washed away. And this is a picture for the church, friends. This is a picture for God's people. And this is actually really good news for those of us who really care about the the hurts and the injustices that the church has done. I want you to sit in that for a second. God is like a refining fire. Jesus is like a refining fire in a fuller soap. And he starts with his people. It starts in here. So God is so committed to your holiness, to the church's holiness, that he would refine it in such a way that when he comes back on the day that he returns, it will be pure. So the injustices that have happened at the hands of the church throughout the centuries, throughout the years throughout even your own life, God will handle it. God will be a refining fire and he will bring those injustices. If you remember God's, God's people, his pastors, his priests, those things, they're judged more harshly for good reason because God cares about the purity and the justice that is administered from his church. So where is the wind for us then? is that you can take comfort in the fact that Jesus has this in hand. You can lament, you can cry out, where is the God of justice? But your lament and your cry out to where is the God of justice needs to look to Jesus. And then you need to say to yourself, self, Jesus will purify his church. Jesus will purify this world. What needs to happen for us is what Paul says to you, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus' justice and mercy come together, friends, and it is gracious and it is kind, but he also cares a lot about his people. So the second thing though, is not only will he refine his people, but Jesus will put right all the things that are wrong, all the things that are wrong. And so Malachi 3, 5, 
gives us a list of things that God says, I will draw near to you in the day of judgment and I will be a witness. And then it lists off many things. And what I want to say just for the sake of brevity is that these things are not exhaustive in their depth, but they are in their breadth. And what I mean by that is that they cover the entire Mosaic covenant and the social violations that the people of God would have done to the covenant. And so why does that matter? Because this list of injustice is both private and it's both public. So God cares about the private injustices that we, ha- that we have in our own lives. And he also cares about the public ones that his people portray. And so God cares about it all. Therefore, we should too care about it all. He is going to be the judge and the witness to how his church, how his people, how it all operates in the world. And so God will, friends, this is the hope. God will though, because of Jesus, set all things right. And that's what he's saying here is that they will restore a fear of the Lord and that they will, if you, if you look back on verse four, he says, I will restore them to the days of old. That's not just like a nostalgic, like let's go back to there. That is the, in the reality of what he intended for the covenant to be, what he intended for his people to be, which is holy, blameless, those who do righteous and justice together. So, How do we know that God will set right all the things that are wrong? Because Jesus came and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And because Jesus preached, fed, healed, and ultimately hung on the cross to display God's justice and mercy. That's how we know he's going to make all things right that are now currently wrong is because he came into history as a man, the man Jesus. So where is the God of justice? What I want to say to you is I want you to see him on the cross. I want you, I want you to hear him say, it is finished. And behold, there is an empty tomb. For the, God, for the God who is just is satisfied to look on you and on me and pardon us in Jesus. And for anyone who would believe. So what I want to do now is I want to beg us. I want to beg you by the justice of Jesus to not sit idly by, to not sit idly by when the private sins are destroying the souls of the person that is sitting right next to you right now. I do not want us to sit idly by when the lives of innocent women are being undignified and trafficked in our city and in our midst. I don't want us to sit idly by when the lives of children are being robbed of good education due to the lack of resources for families in our neighborhood, in our midst. I don't want us to just sit idly by when under-resourced, welfare-bound, and seemingly homeless people feel like they don't fit in at the church. I do not want us to just sit idly by and when people that seemingly are put together in the suburbs are hemorrhaging because of divorce, because of addiction, because of loneliness. I don't want us to just sit idly by when sin and Satan have oppressed the unbelieving neighbor just feet from your house, just feet from this building who can't make sense of the world. I don't want us to just sit idly by. And this text implores us not to just sit idly by. I implore you by the mercies of God in Jesus that we would just be a humble people, a humble community who goes as Jesus goes, who preaches as Jesus preached, who lived and loved 
in this world as Jesus lived and loved. And by beholding his justice and mercy for you on the cross and by the power of the resurrection and the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, we would enact righteousness and justice in this community, in this space, in our very own lives. Because that's what Jesus is doing. And that's why we show up. He is our head. So where is the God of justice? The God of justice came down on the cross and his mercy and justice met there. And on that cross, God's justice worked its final blow to sin and death, which reigned below. And from that cross, God's justice now flows. So we look to Jesus, the refiner fire, who reigns in justice and through his people now administers justice below. So how does God's justice work? God's justice works through a person and for a purpose. And while Jesus forms us as a community of righteous and justice together, we can sing the old Christmas hymn as we long for him to come. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, the mourns in lonely exile here until the son of God appears. So rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel, shall come to thee, church. Justice has come. Justice is here and justice will one day finally appear. Let's pray and prepare for communion. Father, I thank you for the fact that you have given us this text to ask the question of you and you have undoubtedly said to us, the God of justice has come to us in the person of Jesus. And so Jesus, I pray now that we would be more encouraged, more lifted up, more sensitive to where you are already moving and what you are already doing. We ask that you would make us a people who are righteous and just because you are righteous and just. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.